You'd hope that the leaders in Columbus would take heed of what happened to Larry Householder on Thursday and start to serve the citizens of this state in the way they promised to, although we see no sign of that. Larry Householder is the first story we'll be talking about today on Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Courtney Astolfi, Laura Johnston, and Lisa Garvin. What did the judge in the Larry Householder case say as he gave the most corrupt leader in Ohio history the maximum sentence he could deliver? Lisa, we were hoping for some good drama. We got it. And there are so many good quotes from federal judge Timothy Black that I couldn't list them all. But yesterday, after he imposed the maximum 20-year sentence in the state's largest bribery case against Larry Householder, he called Householder a bully with a lust for power. And he said that the $1.3 billion in legislation passed to benefit First Energy could have improved other Ohioans' lives. And he said, you handed it over to a bunch of suits with private jets. And he said that the bribery scheme struck struck at the core of democracy and betrayed trust of the Ohioans. And he said that you liked being the puppet master and having people under your thumb. So usually in white collar crime cases like this, the, uh, the convict is allowed to report to prison by themselves, but the sentence will be served immediately. So Householder is on his way. His attorney, Stephen Bradley, said they wanted a 12 to 18 month sentence. He says 20 years is tantamount to life, given the fact that uh, Householder is 64 and he has unknown health problems. And they say his reputation is in tatters. Yeah, the the idea that that being in prison for life is not appropriate. It is appropriate with what he did to the citizens of this state. It's one of the highest crimes ever. I loved the suits with private jets because that resonates with Matt Huffman and what he's doing with the current Senate version of the budget. They're taking the money that was proposed to give to the very Ohioans Judge Black was talking about, taking it away and giving it to the wealthy, giving it to the tobacco companies, giving it to the to the uh, the utilities. Th- this should send the message, right? I mean, Larry Householder was a bum. He immediately got into office, immediately schemed to enrich himself and get bribes and and serve the bribers, and he's going away now for the rest of his life, for all intent and purposes. Yet you see nothing in Columbus where anybody has taken heed of this. And remember, these are the people that kept him in office for nearly a year after these details came out. Remember how many times Bill Seitz told us, there's nothing to see here, folks. There's no crime. Nothing bad happened. How many times did Bill Seitz defend this bad guy? And Bill Seitz is still there, still arguing that HB6 was a good law. And parts of House Bill 6 still remain. So, you know, there we have it. So... Go ahead. Doesn't it sometimes feel like a kid? Like, I'm just going to keep doubling down. Like, my mom caught me sneaking cookies to the basement. But I'll just say, it wasn't me. It was somebody else. And I'll just hold the line because I don't know where else to go. Like, I mean, there's no other explanation. You just keep saying the same thing over and over again. Well, I I saw a great quote by one of uh, his attorneys, Mark Marin. He said that Larry Householder was never bribed by anyone, and the conduct at issue in the case has been accepted as normal political activity for decades in this country. Well, that's probably true, which is really, really sad. But, But this is a clear indication that it's not true, that you do get 
penalized for it. That's that's the problem is for that guy to say that it means they've learned nothing. You can't take $60 million in bribes and then give a billion dollars off the backs of taxpayers to a private interest, which is what Householder did, which is what Bill Seitz stands behind. That's the amazing thing is they've learned no lesson. They're just saying, oh, this is unfair. And it's not unfair. The jury spoke. The public has spoken. And yet every one of these guys in Columbus is continuing to do the same thing. There's no better example than that budget that the Senate put together. It just Mm -hmm. sticks it to the citizenry one after another while rewarding the wealthiest Ohioans. They've learned nothing. And I can only hope that the FBI is listening to their phone calls because I can't come (laughs) up with an explanation for the giveaway they're making to the wealthy unless there's some sinister stuff going on. And the assistant U.S. attorney, uh, Kenneth Parker, says that they're continuing to look through the evidence. You know, we talked about Sam Randazzo yesterday trying to fight to get his $4 million in assets unfrozen. But he said, you know, future indictments are possible, but they're, of course, you know, hedging their bets on that. But yeah, so we may see more in the future. You know, that's a bunch of horse hockey. We're still looking at it three years Mm -hmm. in. First Energy has admitted paying the bribes, right? So why aren't their officers in orange jumpsuits already. You know, one of our editors pointed out that in the Jimmy DeMora corruption case, three years in, they had dozens and dozens of people charged and pleaded out. We're three years in and we haven't had anybody added to this indictment process. And it's ridiculous. The evidence has never been more overwhelming. I couldn't believe that quote. Yeah, we're, we have stuff we have to look at. It's like, really? Because the rest of us have seen it and it's a slam dunk. I, I just worry that somehow these guys are buying themselves out of out of justice. I mean, I just don't understand where those indictments are. Well, to be fair, we have talked about how the FBI agent in charge of the case said that they went through so many, you know, dead ends because of the way this money was funneled through different, you know, dark money organizations. So maybe they're just trying to put together more of the trail. Well, I'll I'll close it out by saying this. I think by now, Larry Householder finally is wearing that orange jumpsuit (laughs) and well, he should. Matt Borges gets sentenced today. You're listening to Today in Ohio. This is not a local story, except it is. Let's talk about the U.S. Supreme Court striking down affirmative action in colleges, ending a practice that was aimed at reversing decades of discrimination. Laura, this is going to have some of the farthest reaches in recriminations of anything the Supreme Court has done. Right. And this is going to force institutions to look for new ways to achieve diverse student bodies. This was a conservative majority, six to three. They overturned admission plans at Harvard and the University of North Carolina, which are the oldest private and public colleges in the country, respectively. And Chief Justice John Roberts said that for too long, universities have concluded wrongly that the touchstone of an individual's identity is not challenges vested, skills built, or lessons learned, but the color of their skin. Our constitutional history does not tolerate that choice. Supreme Court has been holding up affirmative action since 1978, and as recently as 2016, said it was okay. But now we've got a conservative court, and they said, this isn't right. The the interesting thing is, in a perfect world, if there was no racism, if everyone had an equal education and equal upbringing, then no, you wouldn't have to have affirmative action. But that's not the world that we live in, and this doesn't seem to recognize that. 
Yeah, and the 2003 ruling they made, they said you could see the day coming in 25 years where affirmative action would be gone. So they they kind of telegraphed all along that, yes, this is a discriminatory practice, but we need to do it to end eons of the results of discriminatory practices. The, the, the thing is that the colleges have got to figure out a way to make sure that their student body reflects the population. Right. Uh, and and but it, it through affirmative action, it was all out in the open. It was very clear. Everybody understood what the rules are. Now you're going to have all these subtle rules that people try to interpret. It's, I mean, this is going to create a bit of a mess. I understand where the majority is coming from. They're saying this rule violates the 14th Amendment of the Constitution. You can't have discriminatory behavior based on race, but you also have to overcome all of the implicit bias that exists everywhere in a, in a country that has been mired in racism for a very long time. I think a lot of schools have struggled with this to get the right proportion, even with affirmative action. And everybody wants to be more diverse because there is so many learning benefits to having a diverse student body. But in 2009, California voters to get rid of, uh, voters voted to get rid of affirmative action. And their colleges say they've had a really hard time achieving any kind of diversity. Well, you know, what they what they want, their diversity goals since then. So you can say, and they did say in this opinion, that you can consider race as part of an essay. If people are writing about how their race or their experiences with racism or whatever has affected them and they've overcome that, that can be part of the decision. But you're right, that's very subjective. And it's going to be really hard to figure out how to attract those students to your colleges and make it clear that you want a diverse student body. And I, I hope, I hope they're, I mean, I'm sure they're thinking very deeply about it this summer. It, this ruling did expose some really raw anger by the justices at each other. Mm -hmm. Thomas, mm -hmm. Justice Jackson kind of took some pretty straight shots at each other. This is not your normal academic exercise. The justices wrote very personally about how this is going to devastate a lot of the efforts that have been made. I, I just don't know what the colleges do now. And let's face it, college, it's very competitive to get yes. fit for college. Didn't they leave open a loophole, though? There is a loophole in which universities can craft, you know, certain policies, if I'm not yeah. mistaken. Yeah, it's just they're going to have to do it with some subtlety because, because yes. if they come right out and say, we're trying to reflect the population and we're going to do it based on that, they'll, they'll lose. So they're all going to have to get uh, kind of creative uh, to do it. Uh, I, it's just, it's it, the Supreme Court, since uh, Donald Trump put the three justices on it, it's just throwing precedent out left and right. <laughs> and it's, it's just putting U.S. into turmoil. Today, I think we expect the uh, college debt ruling, which I'm sure they're going to say Joe Biden can't do that. And that'll throw more people into turmoil. Yeah. Hannah Drown is going to look today at local colleges and see what their reaction to this is. Um, College Now did put out a statement yesterday. They help thousands of kids every year go to college um, from Cleveland and the surrounding areas. They said the Supreme Court's decision to overturn affirmative action has helped historic that it's a longstanding policy that's helped historically marginalized students access and achieve higher education. And they called it a huge disappointment. And so I'm, we're going to see lots more of this reaction. 
Well, maybe the colleges and universities will reach out more more diligently to high schools to help them prepare students to apply successfully. A lot of change will come. It'll take years for us to understand the full ramifications of this one. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Ohio's Stand Your Ground law is relatively new and has not really been tested in the courts. How might a case now before the Ohio Supreme Court change that, Courtney? Yeah, the court on Wednesday basically heard a case that could be testing the scope and limits of this 2019 law that really eased defendants' ability to mount a self-defense claim in court. And that law in 2019 shifted the burden of proof from defendants to prosecutors when it comes to self-defense claims. The specific case we're talking about goes back to late 2019, when a man later found to be quite drunk, Nick Young, he was booted from a downtown casino in Cincinnati. Staff called him a cab, and that cab was driven by Philip Palmer, a 71-year-old Vietnam vet. On the way home, there was a lot of hubbub. There was a dispute over the fare. They got into a scrum. They stopped at a gas station. Both were kicked out of the gas station. And they were about to part ways, but Young turned around and walked back towards the cab driver, and the cab driver pulled a gun from his cab and shot Young through the neck. Young survived, and the cab driver was acquitted of attempted murder at trial, convicted of felonious assault. But here's where kind of the issue comes into play. Claremont County Common Pleas Judge Richard Ferenc ruled in that case that he'd instruct the jury to ignore all claims of self-defense here. And, and said Palmer created this situation by following Young at one point into the gas station. You know, attorneys for the cab driver argued that the passenger was rushing towards the driver in an attack. And the other side said that the cab driver actually yelled to this passenger that he left his phone behind in the cab. Either way, this passenger walked back towards Palmer and, and the shooting unfolded. Now, the jury convicted Palmer and and his lawyers say it might not have convicted him if jurors were properly told of that self-defense argument. But the judge nipped that in the bud and and the driver's lawyers told the Ohio Supreme Court this week that the self-defense question is one for the jury to decide here, not the judge. And what all this boils down to is we could get an answer from the Supreme Court about how to apply this law And who ultimately would make that decision in the future, a judge or a jury? Yeah, actually, I think the court will say the jury should have decided the self-defense. I mean, this guy's whole defense is, hey, I felt like I was in danger. It sounds weak. I I think a jury might look at that and say, but wait, you chased him down. Uh, But but they should get to decide, especially with the newness of this law. What what isn't discussed here is prosecutors aren't bringing a lot of cases they used to bring because of this law. So it's taken a while to get a case that the Supreme Court could give some clarity to. uh, But I it sounds I I don't know. It sounds like they might say, yeah, the jury should decide that, not the judge. Yeah. And and we heard from Justice Jennifer Bruner, you know, she said this case could be the linchpin to kind of set the standard going forward. In the meantime, since that 2019 law passed, we've seen a standard ground law, you know, further down this kind of path be passed. And there's no require now requirement now to get a permit for concealed carry. So this is just kind of one step as our laws shift towards being more gun friendly. It's, 
how will that affect things in the justice system? All right. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We suffered through another day of smoke hazing up our air yesterday. We are going to have it again today. Laura, how many fires are actually burning in Canada and where are they? This is a good question. And I, Mike Norman, one of our editors, asked it and was like, OK, I guess we should tell all the readers, too. The Maritimes look pretty safe for right now. That's the eastern seaboard of Canada. But from Quebec and Ontario, right around the Hudson Bay and westward, there are red hotspots way up north into the northern territories. There have been more than 3,000 wildfires since the beginning of 2023. This is a new record for Canada, beating one in 1989. They've scorched more than 8.1 million hectares. That's around 20 million acres across Canada. So there is actually a, a daily site that you can go look. There's an interactive map where you can see the hotspots, and then there's a text-based site. So there were 22 new fires just yesterday, 503 active fires, and and then I think about 250 of those were out of control. So that is just a massive amount burning. Yeah, I the, the most depressing thing I've read yesterday was that we really should expect this all summer. Yes. And what's sad about this is the heat comes up from the south. And in the past, we've gotten cooling breaks when the air moves down from Canada. But if that happens this year, it's bringing all this very dangerous smoke that keeps you indoors. This is not going to be a pleasant summer. Yeah, basically, I think the AP headline was like either hot, hot and humid or smoky. And you're like, great, this is going to be an awesome summer. I mean, today it looks beautiful. The sun is out and you can actually see the blue sky. No, the air, I looked at the air quality meter. It's not. Well, there's bad. It, it feels better. And I think it does look and feel better. Mm -hmm. And I think it's supposed to keep getting better. But you're right. This is, it's not like, okay, phew, we're done with that. We won't see it again. I, you're right. We're going to, this is going to be the summer that we remember the smoke. Yeah. It's been just a strange one. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Why is the Ohio Senate trying to quietly dump Disability Rights Ohio as the state's official for? advocate for people with disabilities and why is this quiet move included in a budget proposal instead of a law? Lisa. Yeah. Yeah. Not really sure why it was inserted in the budget, but apparently members of the Ohio Senate have heard a lot of complaints about the nonprofit Disability Rights Ohio, which is the officially designated advocate for people with disabilities. So they added language to the budget that would remove Disability Rights Ohio at, from that designation. And this designation is required by federal law that goes back to 2000. It mandates a protection and advocacy system for the disabled, also known as P. And it's designated by the governor in each state. So an April report from a Senate Joint Committee accuses DRO of closing intermediate care facilities, sheltered workshops, and day programs at facilities. And there's been witness testimony that said that there's been an antagonistic attitude toward guardians of the disabled that are, you know, in the state's care. The staff uh, said that staff met with intermediate care residents to encourage them to leave the facility without guardians or parents present for this decision. They say there's a lack of accountability, proper coordination, notification, and communication with families and caregivers. DRO Executive Director Kirsten Schoberg says they'll challenge this. 
They say it's a clear attempt to influence what advocacy their group does. And she says that P&A programs were created to shield groups from retaliation by state officials. And she's not sure if there's another nonprofit in Ohio that can currently fill this role. Look, I get that there may be a dispute about whether they're being effective, but if you want to have that conversation, have the conversation. Don't slip it into a multi-thousand page budget mm-hmm. without real discussion. This is not the way to, to, to do public policy. It's another example of Matt Huffman in the Senate just being sleazy. This Let's have a discussion. If they're not doing a good job, let's explain why. Let's Let's hear what they have to say. And if it's time to make a change, make the change. I just don't get it. But but I will point out that the recommendations in that committee report say that the, they should have this entity, you know, fill the role of, uh, I'm sorry, let me, let me restate that. They say that we should have multiple systems with a single focus. Instead of just one group, you would have one group looking at intermediate care, another group looking at other facilities. And they say they can't exceed the authority granted by federal law. And they need a policy that supports patients' rights to reside and receive services in intermediate care facilities. So there's a little bit of positivity there, I guess. Yeah, again, it's a great conversation. It's just we're not really having it. We having be, it. Yeah, I mean, it's let, let's have the conversation. That's the the whole purpose of government is to examine these kinds of things. And, and again, this was shoved in. I hope the Jason Stevens side of this in the House says, no, let's not do that that way. We'll see. Today's the deadline for the budget. I'm, it doesn't look like they're going to make it, although there was some optimism yesterday. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Was the opening of Cleveland City Hall's first gender-inclusive bathroom a symbolic gesture or a pragmatic move? Courtney, how many people does City Hall think will use it? Yeah, so this opening of City Hall's first gender-inclusive restroom yesterday, city officials called it both. Uh, They talked about it being pragmatic. They want City Hall to be welcoming to all Clevelanders. A press release that went out later talked about how you know, folks can use it of all genders. It's also ADA accessible. So folks who need a little bit more room in the restroom might find it helpful. They talked about caregivers, maybe older folks finding use in this space. So they see it as a good restroom for everybody, but it's also a symbolic move. You know, one person we heard from yesterday was city council member Rebecca Marr. She's one of council's two LGBTQ plus members. And she talked about, yeah, it may look like a small nod, But it's important. It's an important step forward to show that, you know, all are welcomed at City Hall. And and we heard from the head of Northeast Ohio's LGBTQ plus Chamber of Commerce. And and they said the same thing. These small structural changes are are not small. They're important to folks. And, you know, I, I imagine it'll get quite a lot of use knowing the state of other restrooms at City Hall. This was a shiny new renovated two-stall facility just inside the front doors. Yeah, but, that but, that's the amazing thing. For a day, at least, City Hall has a clean bathroom. But yeah. but isn't gender-inclusive just another, another term for unisex? And we're seeing a lot of unisex bathrooms popping up in restaurants, bars, and other public facilities. So what's the difference between gender-inclusive and unisex is my question. I imagine practically it's just open to all. Use the restroom if you need to use the restroom. And, and it's the symbolism of saying, hey, we we are recognizing what what's going on and everybody is welcome here. Um, and 
I think that's really the the key to it. Yeah, and you know, Mayor Bibb during this ribbon cutting ceremony talked about the direction the state house is going, the Supreme Court's going, Cleveland's trying to be welcoming in the face of being in Ohio, which is moving in the other direction. I think that's part of the statement here as well. Until but, uh, until Matt Huff and Jason Stevens pass a law that says cities can't do this anymore, which I bet that's already being drafted. Go ahead, Lisa. No, I was just going to say that, you know, gender inclusive also will have it backlash. I mean, I'm totally for gender inclusive or unisex bathrooms, but they they mean the same thing. So you're labeling something to make it a lightning rod for controversy, quite frankly. If you call it unisex, people are like, OK, anybody can go in there that you know what I mean? I, I- to be honest, I haven't heard from any readers um, after I posted that story upset or feeling this was oh, controversial. That's good. that's good to know. Okay. You're listening to Today in Ohio. I was surprised that it has only been open for 10 years because it seems so much longer. What did Susan Glazer find when she explored the first decade of Cleveland's convention center? Laura. I'm surprised you think it's, it feels like more than a decade because to me it feels like a couple of years. And that's because I toured it for the very first time right after I was back from maternity leave and my daughter spiked a fever and I had to take her with me in a stroller. So I remember touring it. It's like, it just hasn't felt like that long. Well, but it's been a a whirlwind. Obviously not all of it has worked. The idea of the global center never came to fruition. That's part of that $465 million we are still paying off in sales tax for a couple more years. But the industry officials say the convention center has injected more than a billion dollars in economic activity in the region since it opened that helps support downtown hotels, restaurants, other businesses in the region, from tour operators to transportation providers. Remember, the Hilton was not there. That was just a dream even when they opened the convention center. So that was another step in it that they thought this will really help us get the big conventions. Obviously, we had a convention center. It was really dated, completely underground, really couldn't be used for much. So they say that this has made a huge difference and very important to economic investment. Yeah, the completely bogus part of this story was the the dire need to spend fifty million, squander fifty million more on the MedMart. I just every time I think about that, yeah, yeah, we need yeah. a jail, we need a, a justice center, and we had fifty million dollars in capital that we just wasted. What's interesting is you can say all you want, we we get all these conventions, but every city is competing for the same conventions, right? And so all the other similar size, similar cities are adding onto their conventions too. And I feel like it is this arms race, kind of like colleges where you have to keep up with your competition. And so they have to keep adding amenities. And I, I didn't realize this. I mean, I knew we were getting a junior ballroom expansion. We're going to have suites, like loges, like they do at a sporting event at the convention center. So I guess the businesses can rent them out kind of like an airport lounge. So like you don't have to mingle with the riffraff of your convention. But, you can go but, back to your suite. But the story pointed out the trend of fewer and fewer conventions. Yeah. More and more people are meeting by Zoom. So they're competing for the same pie, but the pie is shrinking quickly and it may not make sense to do this. Maybe this is not the best way to use downtown land and downtown money if if fewer and fewer people are going to these things in person. It's a great story by Susan Glazer. Check it out. It's on cleveland.com. And this is Today in Ohio. 
Lisa, what's the prediction for the severity of the algae bloom in Lake Erie this season? Yeah, the folks at NOAA say that a dry spring will result in a smaller algal bloom in the western basin of Lake Erie, and it will remain mostly in the western basin. Central and eastern basins typically are unaffected, but localized blooms may crop up after summer rainstorms around the mouths of rivers. So the expected bloom this year is three on the severity index. Last year, it was 6.8. In 2015, it was 10.5. That was the largest in the last 12 years. And anything above seven is considered particularly severe with extensive scum formation. So there was a strong pulse of phosphorus coming off the fields in March due to heavy rains in that month and no vegetation on the ground. But there's little runoff afterwards because of the dry May. And they hope that this bloom would disappear around mid to late July. Okay. You're listening to Today on Ohio. We're going to do one more short one. Courtney, what do the leaders of Garfield Heights say about a proposal to build the new Cuyahoga County Jail there? Garfield Heights mayors and council are are fully on board with these plans to place a justice campus, including a jail, on this plot of 70 acres at Granger Road and Transportation Boulevard. They talked about how that land has sat vacant for a long time, failed plans for it have come and gone, and they are pleased with this opportunity to fill it out with something. They said the site would be beneficial for residents to come and do business there. They talked about that vacant land use. They and part of the part of the benefit they talked about is that it's a green field. It doesn't require brown field remediation, so that's a plus in their column. They didn't get into the income tax side of this equation. The mayor told us that they haven't really analyzed how much additional money they'll be collecting from that. <laughs> I just know it's more. Oh right. Yeah. Yeah, it's look, it's a good plan. I think everybody that's looked at it understands it's a good plan. And it was good for Caitlin to get on the record that they're glad it's coming. Uh, We still have to have the county council sign off on all this and figure out how to pay for it. You're listening to Today in Ohio. I want to point out again, we're taking our summer break next week. We will not have podcast episodes. We will be back a week for Monday. Thank you so much for listening to us each day. Thanks, Courtney. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Laura. Have a good July 4th holiday.